Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Brethren, let's go to the Lord in prayer. My Father in heaven, I praise and thank you for your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for the wonderful opportunity of being with these saints this morning. And I pray with all of my heart that you would come and minister to us by holy truth. Father, I pray above all things that you would exalt the Lord Jesus among us here. I pray that those that are lost might come to see their desperate need of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, for those that are your dear children here this morning, how I pray that they are built up in the most holy faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Timothy chapter 2. Let's begin reading together in verse 1. Brethren, let us hear the Word of God. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come under the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless the reading of His Holy Word to our hearts this morning. Please look with me once again at verse 5. There is one God. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. It is my purpose, God willing, to speak to you this morning about one mediator between God and men. And uh, should the Lord be pleased... This evening I would like to speak to you on Love Not the World. So this morning we want to gaze into the Holy Scriptures upon our Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this first epistle of Timothy, the Apostle Paul taught his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, the importance of defending the faith and edifying the church. Defending the faith and edifying the church. He instructed Timothy to biblically guide the worship of the saints and to appoint faithful men to carry on the ministry of the gospel. He also charged Timothy to defend the glorious gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and to war a good warfare against false teachers and false Doctrine. From the time it was first enunciated, there has been a war against the gospel of God's grace. 
and the uh, pastoral epistles uh, find Paul regularly charging Timothy and Titus to defend the faith, to defend the gospel, that they preach no other doctrine. And we have that here before us. Paul then exhorted, in the passage that we're looking at this morning, he exhorted Paul to pray for all kinds of men, kings, and all that are in authority. This, Paul declares, is a good thing. It is not a suggestion. It is a command inspired by the Holy Spirit that we're to be men of prayer praying for those who are in authority. And then... He explains to us why. Because the one true God desires to save all kinds of men, even politicians. That's what he tells us here. All those in authority pray for all kinds of men. So this is the context for Paul's great declaration. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul uses the word mediator, which sets forth before us a concept that connects all the glorious truths of the gospel. And yet in our day, it is very sad that very few of us understand the word mediator. What it means. In days gone by, especially even in the time of the Puritans, there were whole books this thick written on Jesus Christ, the mediator. Today, it would be difficult to call on folks in in an assembly, have them stand up and define what a mediator is. And uh, I wish I could say I didn't know that from experience, but it is the truth. Many of us hear Bible words and never take the time to get on our knees before God, open up a good dictionary and find out what they mean so that we might get to the heart and soul of what God is telling us. Words have meaning. The Holy Spirit didn't inspire feelings. He inspired words. And we must know His Word. So that's what we're coming here this morning to do, is to look at the word mediator and to understand who the one mediator between God and men is. Now, it is absolutely vital to understand the word mediator that we might lay hold of the truth of the saving grace of God. And in that we must understand then the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There is no gospel without the person and work of Jesus Christ. We don't just believe on some foggy notion of some nice fellow uh, in, in some uh, uh, foggy way that's the Son of God. Most of us don't even know what that means very often. Uh, and then uh, try to figure out how that relates to our being saved. No, God addresses the hearts and minds of men. The resurrected Christ opened the minds of His disciples that they might understand what? The Scriptures. The Scriptures set forth the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in all the glories and majesty of His person that we can bear now, but in His work 
for the salvation of His people. So our gospel entails the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And in His person and work, He is the one mediator between God and men. The word mediator, once you begin to learn and understand how it is used in Scripture, becomes a precious word when properly understood. And one that I trust you will look at with great favor and joy. Now this morning, God willing, I would like to open up this particular verse, verse 5, under these three heads. First, I want us to consider the definition of a mediator. What is it? Secondly, I would like for us to consider the identity of the one mediator, as he is set before us. And finally, where we will spend most of our time this morning, in the work of the one mediator. So let's begin. What is a mediator? Let's consider the definition of that word. To appreciate the blessed truths connected with the word mediator, we must first understand the term itself and why Paul uses it. I don't know if you're familiar with Webster's 1828 Dictionary. If you don't have it, I certainly recommend that you have it, especially if you homeschool. But uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful tool for studying the Scriptures because Webster himself was a vibrant, living Christian and uh, his purpose was to unite the English language, to unify it, I meant, to unify the English language so men might more clearly understand the Scriptures in English. And so you will find that he deals with uh, most of the words found in the King James Bible. And he deals with them in a, in a wonderful and marvelous way. Let me read you his definition this morning. Webster says, A mediator is one that interposes between parties at variance for the purpose of reconciling them. In other words, he takes two parties that are hostile to one another. And brings them together in harmony and unity. His second definition, now you're not going to find this in modern dictionaries, but Webster says, by way of eminence, Christ is the mediator. And he puts the mediator in all caps. Christ is the mediator, the divine intercessor through whom sinners may be reconciled to an offended God. And he cites our passage, 2 Timothy. Hard to believe there was a time when we actually, the common dictionary on people's shelves, had this much good theology in it. But so it did. Christ is a mediator by nature, as partaking of both natures, divine and human. And mediator by office, as transacting matters, between God and man. In other words, Webster clearly understood this. Christ is a mediator by nature, by what He is in His person. He is the God-man. He is fully God, and He is fully man. And in His nature as God and man, He can lay hold of the Most High God. He can lay hold of men. 
He is mediator in his nature and he is mediator by his office. He's been appointed by God to transact the reconciliation of sinful men and the holy God. So a mediator is a go-between. If you want a very simple definition, it's that simple. He is a go-between. One who intervenes or goes between two hostile parties with a view to producing peace and friendship. What does a mediator do? Well, it's really uh, hinted at fairly plainly in the definition. A mediator is an agent of reconciliation. His whole purpose is to reconcile. The very idea, as a matter of fact, of a mediator, the existence of a mediator, speaks of alienation. Those that for some reason are separated. It speaks of alienation, of estrangement, of separation. Well, what has separated the holy God and His creature, man? I'm sure this congregation knows the answer to that. It is sin. It is sin. God created man in His own image. But that which separates the ones who were made in God's image from their Maker is their rebellion. Job put it this way in in chapter 9, verse 33. In fact, turn with me there. Job chapter 9 and verse 33. In fact, let's begin reading in verse 25. Job says, Now my days are swifter than a post. They flee away. They see no good. They are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hasteth to the prey. He says, As I suffer in my misery, I see my life just uh, moving away in, in great haste from me. My days are slipping away. In verse 27 he says, If I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself I'm afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. If I be wicked, why then labor I in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me. He's talking to his friends. They've all come down to supposedly comfort him, but then they begin to say, Job, you know, you're probably having these problems because of some sin in your life. Only adding to his misery rather than comforting him. And he says, my life is slipping away and what's the point of me trying to justify myself to you? You're standing here condemning me, or I should say you're sitting here around me condemning me. If I were to say to you, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything to deserve all this. Though I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet you will plunge me in the ditch. He's talking about their accusations. 
No matter how righteous I try to show myself, you're just going to take me and plunge me in the ditch and show me to be a filthy man by your accusations. And then he says this about God. For He is not a man as I am, that I should answer Him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any day's man betwixt us that might lay His hand upon us both. There's the concept. Job says, You condemn me, my friends. You call me wicked. And I can't get to God elsewhere here in Job. He says, I can't find Him. I can't come into His presence. I can't bring my argument. Oh, that I might find Him. I would come and I'd lay my case before Him. But He can't get there. And neither can you. You and I cannot come into the presence of the Most High God as rebels and expect Him to hear us as we stand defiantly before Him. And Job says, He's not a man, He's not like me, that I should answer Him, and that we should come together in judgment. We can't sit down and just talk this out. Neither is there any day's man. Neither is there any day's man. Now, we don't use that word anymore. Uh, the New King James has the word mediator there. The NIV has someone to arbitrate. The Revised Standard and the American Standard and the New American Standard all have umpire. <laughs> we know what an umpire is, don't we? But you see, this appears to be the only Old Testament allusion to the concept of a mediator. But the idea is all through the Old Testament. What did Job need? Someone that could lay hold of God and lay hold of Him. Because Job confesses with his mouth, He's not like me. He's not a man like me. We can't come together and talk this over and work this out. He realized his alienation. I wonder if there are some here this morning that understand their alienation from God by their sins. So it is. This is what a mediator is and what he does. We need one to lay hold of God and to lay hold of us. Let's consider the identity of the mediator set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's go back there. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, once again, there is one God, as the Scriptures plainly declare throughout. And one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ's very name. Christ Jesus. His very name expresses God's holy mercies and His saving grace. Both His name and His title speak of His glorious mediatorial work. I trust that you know Christ is not the Lord Jesus' name. It is His title. Jesus the Christ. 
Christ is simply the New Testament rendering of the word Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, and both Messiah and Christ mean anointed. Jesus, the anointed. Jesus, the anointed of God. When was He anointed? Friend, go down to the River Jordan and see Him enter the waters of baptism and see the Spirit of God come down upon Him. And the Lord Jesus, John tells us, was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. He was the Anointed One of God, empowered in His glorious work as Messiah, in His work as Mediator, with the Spirit of God without measure. Anointed by God for this holy office. Now, His name Jesus is a most precious name. Our Redeemer's name as a man means Jehovah saves or the salvation of Jehovah or if you prefer Yahweh saves. Jehovah saves the anointed of God. That's our Savior. That's the one mediator between God and men. His very name speaks of the mighty salvation of God. His very title tells us He's the only one anointed unto this work, into this ministry. And so now let us consider, finally, the work of our one mediator. And it should be obvious from the things that I've said before. Why is a mediator necessary? It is because the Word of God declares to us in the plainest terms imaginable. God is holy and men are sinful. Sin separates from God. Today the idea is that God is some kind of Santa Claus sitting up in the sky. He's the great psychologist, the great psychiatrist. He just wants to help people, but men are so big with their big free wills that they can keep Santa Claus from doing what he'd like with men. But brethren, that is not the God of Scripture. The God of the Bible is the Most High who rules and reigns in His resplendent glory over all things in heaven and in earth. He is the Creator and He is the only living and true God. He is the sovereign ruler over everything in creation, spiritual and temporal. So God in His holy nature, the Scripture tells us, is a spirit. Jesus Himself told us in John chapter 4 that God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You don't know what a spirit is. I don't know what a spirit is. You wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know how to define it. Most people think it's kind of like a mist floating through the air. Or some kind of disembodied thing. We don't know what spirit is. But we know that God is spirit. And that He is more real than anything else. In fact, anything that exists, exists because that great and holy and high spirit made all things. 
God is spirit. God is holy. Man is flesh. And man is sinful. God is infinite. We are limited and temporal. We're separated. God didn't create us separated. But when Adam sinned and plunged the whole human race into the long and dark and wicked night of sin, all men were separated from God. And that's why we need a mediator. We need someone who knows the Most High, lays hold of the Most High. Someone who has absolute access at all times to the living God. And someone that can lay hold of man. Now let's consider these things. First of all, because of his fallen condition, man is ignorant of God in his salvation. That's the first thing. Let's uh, make a mental note. Man's ignorant. We think we know a lot of things. We've got our computers out there spitting out information all day, every day. We think our technology is growing and at such an astounding rate, it's not very long before we're going to be creating life ourselves. But the fact is, is that man is ignorant of God and the way of salvation. Secondly, because of his fallen state, man is alienated from God with no acceptable sacrifice. You have no way, you have nothing with which to barter or buy your way into the presence of God. In and of yourself. Nothing. You are alienated from God with no acceptable sacrifice for sins. And thirdly, man is unwilling and unable to walk in the ways of God. Men can talk about turning over a new leaf all they want. Men can go get religious. They can join a church. They can get them a big Bible. They can start spouting Bible verses. They can learn all of the the rules and regulations of their own particular denomination and be twice fold a child of hell. Men in and of themselves are unwilling and unable to walk with God as He is. We're quite willing to walk with the gods we conceive in our own minds. Or that other men conceive, or that the devils vomit out of hell. But the Most High God is not the one that man by his nature wants to serve. So man is ignorant of God and his way of salvation. Man is alienated from God with no acceptable sacrifice for his sins. And man is both unwilling and unable to walk with the Most High. And now let us consider the light, in the light of God's Word, the work of our Mediator to meet men in their lost condition. First of all, Jesus Christ's work as our mediator, is seen in His incarnation. It is seen in His incarnation. As we have laid out, the Most High God is eternal, holy, and uh, spirit. Man is temporal, fleshly, and wicked. Therefore, God in His infinite mercy and His infinite love became flesh. 
John chapter 1. Please turn there with me. John chapter 1. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have two persons here. Not two gods. We have two persons. In the beginning was someone or something called the Word. And the Word was with God. The Greek there literally means was toward the God, face to face with God, an infinite and holy eternal union. And the Word was God. Whoever this Word is, or whatever this Word is, the Scriptures say He is God. Verse 2 says, The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. The very fact that we sit here this morning and breathe His air, and our hearts pump without us having to think about it. And we breathe and see and hear. All of these things are part of His glorious work in creation. There is life Anywhere, because He is life and the source of it. In Him was life, the life was the light of men. And now, if you look with me, in verse 14 it says, And the Word, the one who was with God and is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John could say, one who was filled with the Old Testament Scriptures, he knew and understood the God of the Old Covenant. He uses words here in the Greek that are wonderful. He says, when we looked on Christ, He tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent among us. That's what the tabernacle in the wilderness was all about. God among His people. God, the Most High, separated from sinners, yet the desire of His heart is to be with His people and for them to be with Him. And so, John uses that very terminology about Christ, the Word. The Word was made flesh. He became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. Now we look at the Word in our English and very often miss the the importance of what's being said here. But when the tabernacle had been consecrated to God, the glory of God came down on the tabernacle so intensely that the priests could not bear it. They couldn't stay in the tabernacle. And the same thing happened when the, when the, uh, the, uh, uh, the temple was uh, consecrated. The glory of God came down upon us. Upon that building. So much so that the, 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 the priests ran out. This is the, the very image that John is bringing up. When we looked at that fleshly tabernacle, we saw the glory of God. When He healed the sick, when He raised the dead, we finally began to see who was in that tabernacle. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the incarnation is the very heart and soul 
of Christ's work as our mediator. The living God, second person of the Holy Trinity, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. <clears throat> now, there's several things I want for you to think about regarding the Incarnation. W.G.T. Shedd wrote this. He said, The distinctive characteristic of the Incarnation is the union of two diverse natures, a divine and a human, so as to constitute one single person. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ is not like the mythological characters of the past. He's not part God and part man. He's not like half bull and half God like the Greek and Roman gods who were no gods. But He's fully God and fully man. If He's only partially one or the other, He's neither the one or the other. He must be fully God and He is. And He must be fully man. And He is. And that's what Paul points out to Timothy. There is one mediator between God between the go-between, between God and man, the man, Christ, Jesus, Jesus, Jehovah saves, the very anointed of God. So, let's consider this. In Christ's work as a, in, of, of His incarnation and His being our mediator, He had to be man first, because man had sinned, man had to pay the penalty. Why did Jesus become a man? Because man sinned. An angel could not stand in the place of men. Some other spirit being could not stand in the place of men. Because it was Adam, the man, that sinned in the garden. And therefore it is sin that must be paid for by man. The wages of sin is death. Men die. God cannot die. So God became man to pay the penalty of sin. Secondly, Jesus had to be a man because the penalty for sin involved the suffering of a soul as well as the body. Jesus had to suffer not only in His body, but as He said in, in John's Gospel, now is my soul sorrowful, sorrowful unto death. My soul is grieved. It was not only that He was beginning to suffer the intense weight of God's hand of judgment coming down upon Him, but He realized that shortly he would be cut off from that intimate union that he'd always known being judged a sinful thing. He had to suffer not only in his body, but in his soul. Brethren, this is why in hell, the Lord Jesus Christ said, listen, don't fear men that can just destroy the body. Fear Him that destroys both body and soul in hell. Men will suffer in body and soul. Number three. <clears throat> Thank you. 
Because he experienced the woes of this world, sinners can have full assurance that Jesus understands and sympathizes with their condition. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus became a man so that we might have some confidence that He knows our condition. Though the Lord Jesus Christ was never sinful, He dwelt among us. He knew what it was like to be tired. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be grieved. God in His mercy meets the very crying needs of our soul in someone who does know and understand. How many times when you've been undergoing a great trial have you looked and said, ah, there was just somebody who knew what I was going through. In fact, we get a little prideful in our grief sometimes. Yeah, you got it bad, but boy, I've got it really bad. If I just knew someone who really knew what it was like to go through what I'm going through. Brethren, no one ever has suffered like Christ. No one ever has suffered like Christ. Take your soul to Him. Finally, He had to become a man because since we understand suffering, we can more fully grasp God's love in sending His Son to suffer for us. If you've ever had a long night of grief and suffering, no sleep, it runs away from you. Perhaps your body, your soul is crying out in some kind of pain. Friend, the Lord Jesus Christ not only became man to bear our suffering, surely He hath borne our griefs and carried all our sorrows. But we can rest assured that He knows what suffering is like. So He had to be a man. Only a man could pay the penalty of our sins. And Jesus had to be God because being God, Jesus alone could completely fulfill the law of God. The law of God is His glorious revelation of His will and His character. And He set before us in His Word the glories and the beauty of His law. But none of us has kept it. Not one of us. We like to think that we can. We fool ourselves into doing a few religious exercises and thinking that we're right with God because we do a few things. And at least by our standard, we've done pretty well this last week. But brethren, what God requires is absolute conformity. Perfect conformity to His perfect will. The man Christ Jesus accomplished exactly that. He perfectly kept the law of God for us. Jesus alone as God could completely fulfill the law of God and in this accomplished a perfect righteousness for us. Secondly, He had to be God because being God, Jesus alone could bring a sacrifice of infinite worth. The blood of Jesus Christ was of infinite worth worth because He was the sinless Son of God. And thirdly, because being God, Jesus alone could bear the awesome wrath of God. Brethren, no mere man 
could have borne the full wrath of God for all the sins of all of God's people for all of creation, for all of eternity, as the Lord Jesus did. This is why He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All God's fury and anger and wrath toward the sin of His people was finished in the man, Christ Jesus. No mere man could have endured that. But Jesus had to be a man and Jesus had to be God. In eternal union with His Father for all eternity and in union and living amongst mere men. So Christ and His incarnation define for us our mediator. He is the God-man. Now let us consider in our last moments the three offices of Christ. I don't know how often you sit down and just meditate on the Lord Jesus. But you see, that can't be just some kind of foggy feeling. And that's what some people tend to lean toward. They've got this idea of Jesus that's been cooked up by uh, paintings and religious movies and feelings and their own imaginations very often. Brethren, we must have the Scripture portrait alone. And the Scripture is clear. And it tells us plainly who our Christ is. As the God-man, He fulfilled three glorious roles. He is our prophet, He is our priest, and He is our king. And you need to think of Him that way. Because that's the way the Scriptures present Him to us. What is a prophet? Well, first of all, a prophet is one who speaks to God from man. He speaks from God to man. What did we say man's condition was? As a sinful being, he is separated from the Most High God. He is ignorant of God. Jesus, as our prophet, came to bring the perfect and holy message of salvation. Jesus is the revelation of what salvation by grace is all about. The Lord Jesus Christ came as a prophet. Ezekiel says it this way. We have a a wonderful picture of what a prophet is. It says, And he said unto me, Son of man, go, get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. It's right there. Go, he says. He said unto me, Ezekiel, Son of man, go and get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words, not yours, speak with my words in behalf of God to them unto men. And this is what the Lord Jesus came to do. He is the prophet of God, having had an eternal union with His glorious Father, came and expressed the mind of God to men. That's why they call Him the Word. Our words express our minds and hearts. And He does express to us fully our God. Secondly, the promise of a prophet. 
Deuteronomy 18, God promised to raise up a prophet like unto Moses. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, we're told by Luke that the Lord Jesus Christ is that very prophet. God promised to raise a prophet. The Lord Jesus Christ is that one. We're not speaking in a, in a metaphorical way or having a nice allegorical thought about Christ. He is the prophet raised up by God. And He reveals unto us the glories of our God. Secondly, He is our priest. Man is not only ignorant, but he is alienated from God with no sacrifice. And Christ came as God's priest by offering Himself on the cross once to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to our God. What is a priest? He does the opposite of a prophet. As the prophet represents God to men, the priest represents men to God. And that's what our Lord Jesus Christ did. This is what He did in His manhood. He walked among us and He represented us before the Most High. And He was the spotless Lamb with no sin to His charge that could be the perfect substitute for sinners like you and me. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 says, Every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. Now this function is in relation to and on behalf of particular men. Jesus didn't die in just some... Uh, uh, unclear way in some sense that, well, we hope he died for someone somewhere. That was never the work of a priest. The priest didn't go in and offer up a sacrifice for somebody. I hope this works for someone. The priest always bore, in, in, in Israel, the high priest always bore the gems on his breast, uh, right over his heart, that represented the people that he stood for. Israel. When he went in to offer up the sacrifice, he didn't go in and offer up for some Babylonians or some Assyrians. He went in for all the tribes of Israel. And the Lord Jesus Christ, not only is the high priest that offered the sacrifice taken from among men, but himself was the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And he bore on his own heart all of His children. Every single one of them. Amen. Jesus didn't hope to die for somebody. Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice for His people. And that is why His name is Jesus. The salvation of Jehovah. Because Matthew 1.21 tells us He shall not might, not probably, He shall save His people from their sins. He not only offers up the perfect sacrifice, but He intercedes as well. The Lord Jesus Christ was appointed to this by His Father. 
Psalm chapter 1 verse 10, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 110 verse 4 says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord Jesus Christ was appointed by His Father and is therefore, as we read the Scripture, the only appointed acceptable priesthood now. That's it. He's the only one authorized of God to save His people from their sins. If you would be cleansed, if you would be washed clean, you must go to the priest that God anointed. Down there at the Jordan River, God filled him with the Spirit. He declared from heaven, This is my beloved Son. And that Son is the prophet who reveals the glory of salvation. And He is the priest who offers up the perfect sacrifice. And He lives forever to intercede for His people. To whom was the offering sacrificed? Ephesians 5 tells us. It says, Jesus hath given Himself for us, His people, an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. God the Father is the one satisfied by the offering of the Son. For whom was the offering attended? We've already seen it. Or for whom was the offering intended? Matthew 1.21 Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. The Scriptures go on to tell us. He died for His sheep. He died for His church. He died for the many. He died for His elect. As it says in Hebrews, the children that God gave Him. The intention of the Lord's death is set forth in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not the self-righteous. Not those who think that they've made themselves good enough to be accepted by God through their law-keeping or through their religious exercises. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Are you a sinner? Have you broken His law? There's good news. He perfectly kept the law and He paid the penalty for all His people's law-breaking. There is your righteousness. Believe on Him and you will have everlasting life. He came for sinners. And finally, what did Christ actually accomplish as our priest? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, Who, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Brethren, I don't proclaim a God trying to do anything today. I declare to you a finished salvation in Jesus Christ. He is seated, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And if you repent and believe on Him, 
you will have a finished and perfect everlasting life. It is a salvation that He has accomplished. And He rules and reigns in it. And the, the confidence we may also have is in Hebrews 7 verse 25 where it says, He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him. By Him. Do you see the mediator in that? That come unto God by Him. There's no way of coming to the Most High without going through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. This is a mediator. This is the go-between. The man, Christ Jesus. And it tells us that as the God-man who lives forever, it says, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. He not only offered the sacrifice, but His very presence at the right hand of the Father for all eternity is our surety that our salvation has been won and that we have a certain salvation. Now Christ is not only our prophet and our priest, but lastly He is our King. Man's ignorant, so God in His mercy sent a prophet. Man is alienated with no sacrifice, and therefore God sent the Lord Jesus Christ as our priest who offered the sacrifice that is acceptable and He is our intercessor. Finally, the Lord Jesus is our King. Man is unwilling and unable to walk in the ways of God. So Christ came as our King, listen, to subdue His children by His grace. He's not a Jesus standing down at the end of the aisle hoping that someone might cast a vote for Him. He is the ruling and reigning King. And He conquers His people by His glorious grace. And there is no other. There is one mediator between God and men. Well, we know what a king is, I think, most of us. The, the idea, actually, in Hebrew and in Greek comes from an obscure origin. But ultimately, we have always known it to mean a man ruling over a particular people. Nobody sets up a throne out there and just says, well, I'm just a king of something. A king rules over a people and a kingdom. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in His glorious person and work, proved that the kingdom of God was invading the realm of men and destroying the kingdom of Satan. He said, I, if I cast out devils by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come unto you. Amen. Brethren, the king may have come as the lamb, but he's the lamb that has ruled and reigned from all eternity. Amen. And He rules now. Matthew 28, He announced after His resurrection, all power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. There's no other way to find the entrance to the Most High 
but through the Lord Jesus Christ the King. You see, as a prophet was promised, as a priest was promised, so there was the promise of a king. Zechariah tells us in chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Behold, look, your king comes unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Matthew chapter 21 tells us that as our Lord began to enter into Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 21, verse 4. He sent His disciples to find an ass tied in a cold wither. He said, bring them unto Me. They didn't know why. But He said in verse 3, If any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord. The Lord hath need of him. The Lord hath need of him. And straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and the colt, the foal of an ass. This isn't the way Israel expected her king. He came meek and lowly and humble. And friend, that's the king's call to me and to you this morning. The king doesn't say, grovel in the dirt. And if you can beat yourself enough, grovel up before me and beg. The king of the universe says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. He can because He's the King. He's conquered sin and death. He's revealed Himself and His work as the prophet of God. He has offered up the perfect sacrifice by which any sinner may cry out and come. It doesn't matter what the depths of your sins may be, if you hear His call, come to Him. And you may rest assured that His Word is good because He's the Sovereign of the universe. Christ the King conquers and converts His people by grace. By grace. He sends His Spirit and the sword of His Word. And He deals with their heart and makes them see what they are. He makes them see their need. And then He reveals Himself to be their need. And He deals the death blow 
to their stinking, self-centered wills. People say to me all the time, I don't know if I'm a Christian. Has there been a blow to your will? Have you been able to say like Paul said after the Lord knocked him down, Lord, whatsoever you will. That's the sound of a heart that's been changed. Whatever you want, whatever you will. The king conquers and gives hearts just like that. The king gives a new heart and makes them new creatures. He gives them a new spirit and a power of holiness. Brethren, he didn't just say, look, come down, sign the card, pray the prayer, walk the aisle. Now, you're going to heaven no matter what. doesn't matter how you live. It's all by grace. Don't worry about it. He said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross daily. Deny himself and come after me. Say, so, well, I have a little hard time with that. If the King of Grace has conquered your heart, friends, you've got a heart to take up the cross Amen. and follow Him. Right. That's what the King does. Those are the people in His kingdom. It doesn't matter whether they're sitting in the pews as such. It matters whether they have a new heart. Amen. And they want the King. They want the priest. They want God's prophet. He grants them faith and repentance as Philippians chapter 1 tells us in verse 29. For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him but also to suffer for His sake. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast. Brethren, He not only conquers and converts, He not only gives a new heart and makes them new creatures, He not only gives them faith and repentance, but He gives them a new legal status. You know that thing we talked about a while ago with the law? That's absolutely vital. God demands perfect righteousness. Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly, died in the place of His people, and those that believe on Him have all His righteousness imputed to them. What a king. The kings of the earth want your things. The king of heaven gives you all of his. He gives you his righteousness and all his gifts and promises the day is coming when you will rule and reign not under his feet but with him. Jesus sanctifies the souls of His people. Jesus not only does that, but He preserves and protects them. He preserves His people. He doesn't say, okay, I've saved you. I've given you a new license here. Now get out there and let's see what you can do. No. He is our strength. He is our shield. He is our high tower. He is our conquering King. And the day is coming, dear friends, when we will see the King in all His glory. We're a day closer to it today. By the time this message is over, we'll be that much closer to seeing the Kingdom in its fullness. It's in a form now that's a little hard to see, but it's here. 
And it's advancing every day. The king's not sitting up there hoping and trying and hoping someone will believe and trying to get something done. The Lord today is gloriously conquering those whom He will. He's bringing His children into His kingdom. He's bringing them to conviction of their sins. He's bringing them to Himself. And they are advancing His kingdom. And I see some of the work of it back there. The King of the earth. The day is coming when Jesus, the King of the earth, will gather His people to Himself. The day is coming when Jesus, the King of the earth, will bring final judgment upon those who have rejected Him and His rule. And the day is coming when Jesus, the King of the earth, will manifest His kingdom in its eternal glory. Daniel 7, verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Christ is the mediator. We're ignorant. God sent His prophet. We're separated, alienated by our sins and have nothing in our hands to bring. And God sent a high priest with a perfect sacrifice and a perfect intercession. We're unwilling and unable to walk in God's ways. So He sent us a king to conquer us, give us new hearts, and rule us by His grace through faith. There is one God and one mediator. The man Christ Jesus. Do you know Him? Repent and believe on Him unto everlasting life. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, for Your holy mercies that You could see us in our darkness and send a complete and a full salvation in our Mediator. May we ever love Him. May we ever love that Word. And may those who do not know Him flee to Him today. And I plead it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com. 
by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.